Our lesson of the day is Psalm 10. We sang a part of it earlier. Now listen carefully to God's Word. Why, Yahweh, do you stand far off? Why do you conceal yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. They are caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked praises of the desires of his soul, and he blesses the greedy. He reviles Yahweh. The wicked, according to the haughtiness of his nose, does not seek him. There is no God in all his schemes. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all his enemies, he sneers at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be shaken. Generation after generation, which shall not have trouble. His mouth is filled with curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are trouble and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. From his hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are peering for the helpless. He lurks in the hiding place like a lion in its thicket. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted, dragging him off in his net. The crushed one sinks down. The helpless fall under his strength. He says in his heart, The mighty one has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He never saw it. Arise, Yahweh, mighty one, lift your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked reviled God? He said in his heart, He will not call to account. But you yourself see trouble and vexation. You consider it, taking it into your hand. The helpless abandon himself to you. You yourself have been a helper to the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call his wickedness to account. Certainly, you will find it. Yahweh is king everlastingly and forever. The nations will perish from his land. The desire of the afflicted you hear, Yahweh. You establish their heart. You incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed in order that mortal man of the earth may terrorize no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the promises of Your Word that You are sovereign, You are Lord and King over all, and that You will call to account. We thank You for Your patience. We thank You for Your mercy and Your kindness towards us. And we pray that this morning You would remind us afresh of those great Gospel truths that You would illumine our hearts by Your Spirit and bless the reading and the preaching of Your Word that it may be fruitful and multiply in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we saw last Lord's Day, Psalms 9 and 10 are actually two halves of one whole psalm. In fact, some some traditions uh, ha- actually keep them together in their Bibles as Psalm 9. So if you were to pick up a Bible and uh, try to find Psalm 23 and it was in the wrong place, it might be because 
all the numbers after this in some traditions are, are a little bit off. The reason, uh, the way we uh, understand this, the, the important thing about that fact is that this whole psalm, Psalms 9 and 10 together, form one long alphabetic acrostic. The structure is such that every verse or every other verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. They are the ABCs of life in God's world. They teach us, God's people, and they are a declaration to the nations of how God works, of what life in God's kingdom is really like. This extended psalm uh, shows us, the structure of the psalm shows us, illustrates for us what is being described. The first half, Psalm 9, which we looked at uh, more last week, it, the, the uh, confidence in God as king and judge is very high. Uh, there are some uh, incredible, just filled, David is filled with faith as he proclaims God's kingship and, and calls on the nations to submit to him as their Lord, uh, as he calls out to God in prayer. And the, uh, the alphabetic acrostic, the structure in that first part of the psalm is very neat and tidy. Only one letter is missing. They're all in order. Uh, it's all there, very clean and, and collected. But then everything goes haywire when we hit Psalm 10. The, the structure falls apart, it, it seems, because Psalm 10 is describing the moral chaos that we so often see in the world around us. Psalm 10 describes the arrogance of the wicked and the apparent absence of God. Psalm 10 makes is describing a situation in which it looks like God has lost control. It looks like God has forgotten His people. And to illustrate that, the alphabetic structure of the psalm falls apart in that section. Whole letters are missing. Some of them are out of order. There's this huge gap in, in the structure in, during that uh, section, most of Psalm 10. Because the, the structure there is illustrating for us, is showing there what David is telling us in the content of the psalm. It looks like God has lost control to the extent that even the alphabet has fallen apart. The opening verse of Psalm 10 is actually the central verse of the entire united psalm. So Psalm 910, uh, as I will refer to it, is hinged on uh, chapter 10, verse 1. And it is the central, it is a central question that often haunts God's people when we are confronted with evil in the world, when we are afflicted, when we are oppressed, when we are going through times of trials. What do we must most want to know? We want to know why. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you conceal yourself in times of trial. In a previous sermon, I discussed the fact that in the Psalms, the primary question that is asked of God is not why. The primary question that the psalmist asks of God 
is how long? How long, O Lord? Because how long is a question jam-packed with humility and faith? How long suggests, it assumes that God is hearing you. It assumes that God will act. It is an exercise of faith to say, how long until you keep your promises? Because you believe that God is a God who keeps His promises. And so the overwhelming cry of the psalmist is not why, but how long, O Lord? Obviously, based on this psalm and many other psalms, it's not wrong to ask God why. We can ask God why. We have divine permission. Jesus Himself asked God why. Why have You forsaken Me? But we need to be careful because the question why can easily slide into a demand for answers. When we ask God why, it can, it can turn into all too easily calling God to account for His actions. Calling God to give us an explanation of what is going on. Asking God why is sometimes, not all the time, is sometimes driven by our desire to get a glimpse into the divine decrees, the hidden will of God. We want to peer over and get a glimpse at God's hand and try to understand why He's doing this, what He's up to, as if that would actually help us. Because I'm not sure that it would help us in the midst of our affliction. Whatever the case, Scripture warns us against any kind of presumption of calling God to account, of demanding an explanation from God, we are, we are more than welcome to ask God why. But notice that when the psalmist asks God why, he's not asking, why is this happening to me? Why is this bad thing happening to me? As if I don't deserve the bad thing that's happening to me. Like, I'm too good for this. I've put in too much time for this to be happening to me. I've served you X, Y, and Z ways, God. How can you then think that I deserve this? Right? I'm certainly above this trial or this affliction. The psalmist asks, why have you hidden yourself? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you absent? They don't want an explanation about the trial. They don't aren't arguing their case that they're better than this trial. They want God's presence. They need His presence, His renewed sense of His nearness. So at the same time that we are sort of implicitly warned against this sort of presumption of demanding that God give us an answer, an accounting, at the same time, interestingly, the Bible does very often give us a glimpse into the divine logic behind particular situations. Usually it's in retrospect, but not always. And when that happens, when God explains Himself, when He explains His rationale, when He gives a reason for why He's permitting these 
certain things to happen or why He's sending these certain afflictions, what we find without exception is that His apparent absence, God's apparent tardiness, God's apparent ignoring of our, of our pleas, God's apparent apathy is in fact only His mercy. It's His patience. It's His fatherly discipline. It's His plan to bring about the redemption and maturation of His people. Let me just take a few examples from uh, the first part of the Bible because you could, you could go through the entire Bible and make a really long list uh, of all the examples of when God explains uh, Himself and His logic uh, and it actually what appears to be something really mean and uh, just downright unloving uh, is actually God's mercy. It's His patience. It's His kindness for the good of His people. So, go all the way back to, to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2. God puts the man and the woman in the garden he gives them everything. He gives them freedom to access every good gift, except He temporarily withholds from them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can assume that this would at some point have been given to them when they were ready for the authority and the, the kind of kingly wisdom that this tree would have conferred upon them because He said, I give you all the trees to eat. And then He says, but this one tree... You can't. And Adam and Eve grasped for authority. They seized without God's permission before it was time, before they were ready. They seized and they ate of that tree and they found out why God had not given it to them yet. They were ashamed. They realized that they were not ready for that kind of glory. They were not ready for that kind of responsibility. They were not prepared. They were not mature enough to take that on themselves. And so they were completely ashamed and embarrassed, separated uh, from God and from one another. Fast forward uh, to Genesis chapter 15 and God is cutting the covenant. He's sealing the covenant with Abraham uh, where He promises to give, make Abraham a great nation, to give him the land uh, of Canaan as a possession for His people. And what does he tell Abraham? He throws in some fine print to that covenant contract, that covenant ceremony that is just sort of a shocker. He says, oh, by the way, uh, your descendants are going to be sojourners in a foreign land and you will be afflicted for 400 years. Huh? <laughs> really? What? But why? Why does God say that He's going to make them wait. So basically, Abraham, you're never going to see this. right? The promises that I'm making, yeah, you're not going to see it. Your descendants, yeah, it's going to take them a long time. They're going to have to go through a lot of suffering and they're going to have to wait a really long time. But you know why? God gives us a glimpse as to why. That sounds really harsh. right? God is holding out on His people, isn't He? Why does He say? He says but I'm going to judge the people who oppress you and send you out with incredible wealth. And that's the exodus from Egypt. The Egyptians are paying them to leave. And what do they do with that wealth? They build God's house. 
God says, you need, you need resources to build a temple so that I can come and live among you. In order to get those resources, you're going to have to you know, be oppressed by the Egyptians for a while. And why else? Why else did God delay? Why else was there a 400-year waiting period on this uh, promise? Because the sins of the Amorites was not yet complete. God couldn't bring Israel into the land. He couldn't judge the inhabitants of the land. He couldn't drive the people out of the land of Canaan because of His mercy. Because He doesn't ever bring judgment a minute, a second before the right time. He always gives ample time for repentance. Ample time for the people to submit themselves to Him. And so, He made His people wait until it was time. Until they were the Canaanites were so hardened in their sin uh, that it was time for judgment. And at that moment, not a second too soon, then God gives them the land. We could go on and on and on. Joseph's situation is a, a very clear example of this. Joseph had to endure the hatred of his brothers, the enslavement in Egypt, the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, imprisonment unjustly for something, a crime he never committed. And then his buddies forgot him, you know, when they got out, the, uh, the baker and the cupbearer, they got out and they forgot about him. And he sat there in Egyptian prison. And it was years before he was finally exalted to uh, the promises that God had given him, those visions. Uh, those were finally fulfilled when he was exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. He was given authority over the land of Egypt and he ended up saving the lives of countless people and becoming a blessing for the nations. And so he can say that what you, what his brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, time won't permit us to continue uh, going on and on and on in this list, but suffice it to say that whenever we do get a glimpse into God's logic, whenever we do uh, get some explanation for the difficult things that God uh, sends to His people, it's because of God's mercy. It's because of His patience. It's because He doesn't give us the good things uh, that we want before we're ready for them. He makes us he makes us uh, qualified to receive those gifts before He gives them to us sometimes. Now, of course, these few examples and many of the other examples in Scripture probably don't answer the questions that you find yourself asking about your particular situations. If you are facing... Uh, trials and afflictions, if you are confronted with evil in the world and you ask, why did God allow this or that to happen? Where was God when I needed Him most? Very often, there are no answers to our questions as to why God sends us trials or why God permits evil in the world. Sometimes, very often, there just aren't answers to those kinds of questions. We probably won't ever fully understand why 
at times God hides Himself from us. And even if God did tell us why, that probably wouldn't take away the ache or the pain that we feel when God seems to be absent. But at the same time, and here is the important part, these examples from Scripture, the the truth of God's Word gives us every reason to trust God even when we don't understand His ways. When we can't understand why God does certain things, we have to hold on to the truth that He is a good and gracious Father. He is the wise and omnipotent Lord. He is the King and the Judge who will set the world to rights. David finds himself in the same place that you and I often find ourselves. David asks, why, Lord, why do you hide yourself? Why do you stand far off? And he never gets an answer. Jesus on the cross never gets an answer. He gets salvation. He gets resurrection. But he never gets an answer. He gets something far better. But the fact that David doesn't get an answer to his question doesn't stop him from praising God. It doesn't stop him from thanking God. The absence of an answer to his question doesn't stop David from rehearsing God's faithfulness in the past and His promises for the future. Instead of withering in self-pity and doubt, he calls on God to come out of hiding. Show yourself. Show up, Lord. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call them to account. Now, I do not mean in any way to uh, suggest that in times of affliction, all we need to do is just suck it up and have more faith. Uh, just, just, just trust God. You know, your, you know, your problems aren't that big of a deal. Just trust God. It'll, it'll all be okay. Uh, that's not, that's not at all what the psalm here, uh, is, is teaching us to do, and that is not at all what I am suggesting that we do. The, the pain and the anguish, uh, and the questions that we often face in times of suffering are real and are validated by psalms like this. We are given this kind of language to express that kind of heartache in a way that is faithful and that is honoring to God. So, recognize the irony of the opposite response. If we don't continue to hold on to God's promises, if we if we think that God has abandoned us, if we accuse God of holding out on us, if we dismiss God as uncaring, unloving, or powerless to intervene and to help us and to prevent suffering and evil in the world, what does that sound like? Does that sound familiar? It sounds like the way David describes the thoughts of the wicked in this psalm. How do the wicked think? How do they, how do they devise their plans? They think 
God does not see. They think God does not care. They think they can get away with anything because they think that God is absent and He's deaf and He's powerless to intervene. That's the, that's, this is the hard part. We know that those are lies when we hear them in the mouths, from the mouths of the wicked. But we are usually not as quick to recognize those as lies when they begin to enter our own hearts and minds. When we are tempted to believe that God has forgotten. When we are tempted to believe that God does not see. When we are tempted to believe that God will not call to account. This is why we have psalms like this. Throughout Scripture, God shows us Satan's playbook so that we will not be ignorant of his scheme, so that we will not be caught off guard, so that we can effectively resist his lies and temptations. Satan has been at war with God at least ever since Genesis 3. And Scripture is filled with warnings about how he works and the, the way that he works so that we can stay on guard against his lies and temptations and attacks. And by the way, this, the description of the wicked in Psalm 10 is primarily related, very much related, to words, to lies, to deceit, to things coming out of the mouth of the wicked. This is exploitation. This is violence. Yes, but it is also the devil's specialty. Lies, deceit, oppression, slander, accusation. That's how the devil works. He doesn't have a very big playbook. He has no imagination. He just keeps running the same plays. He just keeps using the same tactics. He twists God's Word. He lies about who God is. He lies about who we are. He offers false promises. He offers us shortcuts to glory to try to avoid all the inconvenient suffering that God uh, uses to sanctify us. The, the enemy appeals to our weakness and vulnerability, our sense of uh, insecurity and, and mortality. The enemy flatters us about what we deserve. He tells us that God is not good and that He is holding out on us and that we should take things into our own hands. He lies about what we need. He lies about how other people have let us down. He accuses us of sin that has already been confessed and forgiven. And of course, one of His favorite lies and we see here very clearly in Psalm 10, is that God doesn't see. God doesn't care about your suffering. When God seems silent or absent, the enemy loves to convince you that God really is absent. That God really doesn't hear. That there is no help on the way. It's like in the horror movies when they pick up the phone to call the police and the line is cut. That's Satan's favorite move, right? To say, yeah, go ahead. You can pray all you want. God doesn't hear. There's no help coming. You are on your own. C.S. Lewis captures this um, idea so well. Um, speaking of 
getting a glimpse at the devil's playbook, C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, um, lays out for us, explains for us, from the perspective of the devil, how these seasons of afflictions often work. If you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, it's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote from the perspective of an experienced demon named Screwtape to a demon in training named Wormwood. So everything is written from the perspective of a demon. So when he calls, when he says the enemy, he's speaking of God, uh, his patient is this man that Wormwood has been assigned uh, to tempt. So hang with me here. Uh, Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis describes the way that the enemy tries to use uh, times of affliction and the way that uh, God uses those times. He says, My dear Wormwood, so you have great hopes that the patient's religious phase is dying away, have you? I always thought the training college had gone to pieces since they put old slub gob at the head of it. And now I am sure. Has no one ever told you about the law of undulation? Humans are in continual change, for to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. As long as your patient lives on earth, Periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless you make use of it. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in the enemy's efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand on its own two legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing, it, the man, is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please Him best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away His hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, He is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished 
and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. The prayers offered in the state of dryness are those that please him best. And thankfully, the Psalter is filled with prayers that are perfect for the troughs of life. That's where praise is most needed. That's where prayer is most important and most effective. Martin Luther loved the psalm so much primarily because he himself experienced intense seasons of affliction and spiritual trials. In fact, Luther himself wrote a great deal about the God who hides Himself. Some scholars have even said that that theme of the God who hides Himself is one of the central themes of Luther's theology and his life. So, what was Luther's advice to those who felt abandoned by God? Luther's advice was to keep looking for God where He has promised to be found. Don't go looking for a new mystical experience. Don't go looking for other ways to access Jesus. Don't go searching for special knowledge within a club of the spiritually elite. Keep looking for God where He has promised to show up. Keep looking for God in His church. Keep looking for God in His Word, in the sacraments, in the fellowship of the body of Christ, in prayer and praise and service. That's where Jesus has promised to be. That's where God has promised to meet us. And so even when it seems like He is hiding Himself, even when it seems like He's not showing up, showing up like He said He would, in faith, we keep coming back and we keep coming back in humble, determined confidence that eventually the fog will lift. Eventually God will step out of hiding. Eventually He will show us that He has been with us all along. And that's how Psalm 10 ends. The alphabetic acrostic unravels into chaos at the beginning of Psalm 10. But then it turns and it it comes back toward the end of the psalm. In verse 14, the structure begins to reappear. It emerges out of thin air, so to speak. All is put right in the end. The psalm closes with this celebration of God's faithfulness and the encouragement that God Himself does see trouble and vexation. He considers it and He takes it into His hand. This psalm teaches us how to pray in times of affliction and how to remain faithful even when it seems like God has abandoned us. David's instructions, his exhortation to us is clear. We must stand against, reject the lies of the enemy by constantly rehearsing God's faithfulness, by constantly giving Him thanks, by constantly crying out to God for help, throwing Himself 
on His mercy. Literally, as David says, abandoning ourselves to God. So the next time you find yourself asking God why, just remember that you're in good company. The psalmist, Jesus Himself, knew the hiddenness and the silence of the Father. Jesus knows what it is like to have prayers go unanswered and to not receive an answer, but to receive resurrection and glory. And Jesus, that same Jesus, is with you in your trials. He is right where He has promised to be. And that is with you. He is your stronghold. He is your refuge in times of trouble. Make no mistake about it. To know Jesus is to know suffering. But when we suffer in union with Jesus, we do so in confidence that Jesus specializes in turning suffering into glory. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, who art a wall of fire round about Thy people and a glory in their midst, be Thou our strength in the hour of weakness, our sure defense in every danger, and suffer no temptation to overwhelm us and no adversity to destroy our peace of mind. In every time of danger or distress, let us lift up our prayer, lay hold upon Thy help and await Thy deliverance, that in quiet endurance we may possess our souls and that the testing of our faith may be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.